Hi, this is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of having on the podcast uh, friends and colleagues from the Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, at, uh, uh, in New York City, uh, Bill Samorelli and uh, Jenny Mueller, will be speaking with us about their article titled Risk Stratification of Stage 1 Grade 3 endometrioid endometrial carcinoma in the era of molecular classification uh, published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. So Jenny and Bill, uh, thank you so much for accepting our invitation and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Pedro. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having us. Great. So this is, uh, of course, first congratulations and to you both and to the, the group of co-authors on this uh, really important uh, topic and very timely topic. So uh, Jenny, I wanted to start with you, and I was wondering if you can start by defining some of the risk factors associated with uh, PORTEC-1 and GOG-99, and then if we can go over what makes uh, a patient a high intermediate risk patient uh, category. That's a great way to start this conversation because it is the underpinning of this, this project. So um, generally with PORTEC-1, this is a study that was published in 2000. It was a randomized trial international, so over 20 centers in the Netherlands, looking at over 700 patients. They randomized these patients to observation or pelvic radiotherapy, and they tried to identify a, an at-risk group. So they selected patients who were grade one with deep myoinvasion, grade two with any myoinvasion, and grade three with superficial myoinvasion, as well as in the old staging system, stage 2A. Mm -hmm. So when they took all of these all comers and randomized them to observation of pelvic radiotherapy after history bilateral salpingo oophorectomy, in this study, nodes were not required. They noticed no difference in overall survival between those two cohorts, between observation and pelvic radiotherapy in overall survival. They did see a local regional recurrence benefit, particularly in patients who had certain high-risk traits. So patients over the age of 60, those with deep myoinvasion and grade three histology. And so the PORTEC-1 study, that PORTEC-1 criteria that we reference in our figure in our paper really comes from that particular study. GOG-99 was published about four years later. That's a US-based randomized trial looking at a very similar question. So patients who we felt were potentially at risk for recurrence, randomized to observation versus pelvic radiotherapy. This study used slightly different risk factors. So they dug back to a prior clinical pathologic study by Kreisman and others, GOG-33. And they looked at factors like outer third myoinvasion, lymphovascular space invasion, grades two and grades three, and age. And although the study was really looking at what they called an intermediate risk cohort, they did find a subgroup of patients that they saw benefit when they administered pelvic radiotherapy, where they saw a, a significant reduction in local regional recurrence. This is what they called their high intermediate risk subgroup. And it's important to say that the trial wasn't powered to, to detect this difference. So this is, this is sort of important to know the background, but the high intermediate risk criteria for this group is LVSI or lymphovascular space invasion, outer third myoinvasion, age, as well as grades two and grades three. So for patients who are 70, any one risk factor would, would work. 
patients over 50 to risk factors and patients of any age, as long as they had all three risk factors that they could stand to benefit from um, post-operative radiotherapy. Great, Jenny. Uh, great explanation of, uh, of those two studies and the, and the risk factors. Uh, so certainly it's a great way to start this discussion. And then now moving forward on to the uh, TCGA or the, the Cancer Genome Atlas Project. Um, what are the four molecular subtypes of endometrial cancer according to the TCGA? This is, um, this is again, such bread and butter. It's really good to go over it. And for all those listening, if you have not yet familiarized yourself, it's really important to understand these subgroups. So the Cancer Genome Atlas or TCGA published work in 2013 in the journal Nature, led by a variety of scientific investigators in our research space. And they looked at nearly 400 endometrial cancers, predominantly endometrioid and some serous. And at that time, they leveraged a lot of different next generation sequencing platforms, not necessarily the ones we might use today, but a lot of different advanced technology to molecularly annotate these tumors beyond histopathology. And they found that these tumors grouped themselves into four clades or subgroups. Of the four, one was called POL-E or polymerase epsilon mutated. These are hyper, like ultra mutated tumors, hundreds and hundreds of mutations in a tumor. There's also copy number high, which is a P53 abnormal tumor, so serous and serous-like cancers. MSI high, which is microsatellite instability high tumors. We would call them ultra or, pardon, hypermutated. So a lot of mutations, but not nearly as many as the POL-E. This is where you find your Lynch and your Lynch-like cancers. And then this copy number low, we might call it no specific molecular profile now, and these were microsatellite stable, low-grade endometrioid tumors. And what was really practice changing or very provocative in our community is that these four subgroups had prognostic relevance. So the copy number high experienced the worst progression-free survival or the worst oncologic outcome, just based on that molecular classification. Pol E experienced the best progression-free survival. And then this intermediate group between the MSI high and the copy number low. Fantastic. And um, now getting on to this uh, particular uh, study, why did you consider that performing this study now was important? And, and what was the primary objective of the study as set forth by the investigators? Yeah, so this is still 1B grade three endometrioid endometrial cancers. They're early risks or early stage high risk. And it's very debatable what we think the best treatment is for them. This is where we have a lot of our consensus conversations at the department level where we meet each week and talk about what do we think is the best choice for these patients. Um, some groups would actually identify some 1B grade three endometrioid cancers as high risk, others high intermediate risk. Some people are starting to integrate molecular information, others are not, they're using histopathologic criteria alone. And so we felt that there was some opportunity to gain granularity and, and helpful information in this group. We also are very um, privileged and, and grateful that we're at an institution where we molecularly annotate all of our endometrial cancer. And I understand that that's not true for everyone. So we felt that we had a unique opportunity to really share the molecular data and to look at, you know, how does this impact the ways that we're actually just clinically trying to classify a risk for these patients. So 
we know Portec One and GOG 99 are what we've always used, but we are not entirely sure the 1B grade 3s were really inclusive in those classification systems and some of them slip through the cracks there. So the aim of the study was to evaluate how concordant Portec 1 and GOG 99 were um, in identifying those 1B grade 3s, and particularly how they are concordant to the molecular annotation, copy number high, for instance, and then to look at adjuvant treatment decisions that were made for these patients and oncologic outcomes. Fantastic. Very well. So now, uh, Bill, we'll switch over to you. Um, let's talk about methodology. What was the methodology of this study? And specifically, if you can share with the audience, what were the inclusion criteria for the study? Absolutely. So now as we dive into our paper, um, it's important to note which patients were included. So all of these patients uh, in this current study um, underwent surgery here at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. The study was approved by our IRB, and we included patients between the years of January 2014 and 2020 whom were diagnosed with a stage one, so either A or B, grade three endometrioid endometrial cancer on their final pathologic review. The reason that we chose those years was because we had the molecular uh, data available for that timeframe, and then we had sufficient follow-up for those patients. All of the patients did have to undergo nodal assessment, and that was typically with sentinel lymph node biopsy. Uh, pelvic washings were not required to be included in this study, and all of the pathology for these patients was actually re-reviewed by um, one of our expert GYN pathologists here at Sloan Kettering. We did go into the EMR and obtain clinical demographic characteristics for the patients. And then after that, we assigned each patient to a PORTEC-1, high intermediate risk or not high intermediate risk group, a GOG-99, high intermediate risk or not high intermediate risk group, uh, based on the criteria that we listed in figure one of our paper. And that does correspond to the original studies. In addition, we assigned all of the patients to a TCGA molecular subgroup based on their next generation sequencing, as well as IHC results. Very well. So um, now let's get on to the, uh, the results of the study. And what would you say to our audience are like the main take-home messages? Absolutely. I'll try to summarize this here. And I think that the results of this study were quite interesting. So um, when the readers look at table one in the paper, you can see clinical pathologic features, and there was an equal distribution of the molecular subtype between the PORTEC-1 and GOG-99 groups. So they were comparable um, in regard to their molecular subtype groupings. Both the PORTEC-1 and the GOG-99 high intermediate risk groups were more likely to be stage 1B and to have greater than 50% myometrial invasion. And the GOG99 group in particular was more likely to demonstrate lymphovascular space invasion or LVSI. They were also more likely to receive adjuvant chemotherapy. In regards to post-op radiation, there was no difference between the two groups, so between PORTEC-1 and GOG99. Then when we look at clinical demographic um, characteristics by molecular subtype, uh, turning our attention to table two, you can see that characteristics overall were fairly split between the four groups. However, if you look at the MSI group, MSI high group, they were more likely to show deep myometrial invasion on their final path, and they were more likely to have received post-op chemotherapy. So those are all important things to keep in mind as we go through this paper. 
And Bill, as we uh, start looking at some of the the details of the uh, of the results, and and you you make a statement in your in almost in the beginning of of your discussion, you say neither Portec one nor GOG ninety nine criteria were able to differentiate patients as high intermediate risk among those with surgically stage one grade three endometrioid endometrial cancer. So for some of our trainees or younger faculty that may say, you know why is this important? Like, what, wh why should I really consider this as a, as an important statement? That's a, also a great point. And I think figure two is a kind of a, a very great figure to answer that. And I can go through that with us right now. Um, you can see that there's a lack of agreement between the two classification systems. So poor tech one and GOG 99 by looking at the top two rows. Um, so here in red, we annotated which uh, patients fell into a high intermediate risk classification by either of these two classification systems. Um, you can see that there are about half of the patients who were um, considered high intermediate risk by either Portec 1 or GOG 99, but not by both. And that's when there's just one red mark um, and one gray mark for that patient column. Um, and, Basically, the fact that half of them are not lining up is showing almost complete discordance between the two classification systems. Um, you can also see that um, as we move on to uh, PFS results, so that's in figure three. Um, when you look at Portec 1 and GOG 99 specifically, there's no difference in outcome in regards to three or PFS when you stratify by GOG 99 higher intermediate risk or not and also by Portec 1, high intermediate risk or not. Um, so really looking at these two figures, you can see that there's not a great consensus between Portec 1, GOG 99 when it comes to our specific patient population. And I think this also sums up probably what we're struggling with at tumor boards and making treatment decisions across the country when we look at this group of early stage but high risk patients, um, depending on which classification, classification system you use, you may be um, practicing differently. Yeah, and I, and I do have to say credit to you or whoever came up with the idea for figure two, because I really think it's fantastic, a visual representation of, uh, of the results of, uh, of the study. So congratulations on that and certainly encourage uh, our listeners to uh, focus on, on that as well. Um, now, as you know, we have uh, some questions from our, our fellows in, in the journal. I think one of your co-fellows, uh, Ryan Kahn, is another one of our fellows now. Yes. Um, so from time to time, uh, his questions will come up as well in the in the next podcast. But uh, one of the questions is, how do you account for treatment differences among groups when evaluating these results? Great question. Um, and I can take that one. You know, I think this is why we dove so much into the clinical demographic features, and we really took a lot of time assembling a robust representation of the group that we had here. And fortunately, we had access to this information for these patients. So it is important for me to mention this is a retrospective cohort of patients. They did have molecular annotation, as Dr. Miller said, um, but during the time frame that we um, examined for this study, we were not... Uh, frequently using molecular information to guide adjuvant treatment decisions. So it had not yet found its way into our practice. When looking at our specific results, we did see a statistically significant treatment difference when we stratified by GOG99, mm -hmm. in that the high intermediate risk patients were more likely to receive post-op chemo. So that's very important to highlight here. 
the GOG 99 classification system, if you remember, does place an emphasis on lymphovascular space invasion as well as myometrial invasion, which are both well-known high-risk tumor features, at least at our institution. So I, I think that that may have had uh, come into play when discussing post-operative chemotherapy to those patients. And then in addition, when we compared tumors by their molecular subtype, we found that the MSI group did receive a statistically significant higher rate of post-op chemo. And an explanation for this may be that this group had an increased proportion of tumors that exhibited deep myometrial invasion. So again, this likely, um, the, those high-risk tumor factors uh, that we think about at our institution and across the country probably played a role in discussing chemotherapy with these patients. Great. Uh, one more question for you, Bill, before uh, turning it over to Jenny again. And this question comes from Gabriela Esquivardi, who is at the European Institute of Oncology in Milan. Uh, she asked, uh, have you found any multiple classifier tumors? How would you consider those in the context of this information? Yes, great question. So uh, there are um, many authors of this paper have been, including Dr. Mueller, Dr. Weigold, and others have worked really um, tirelessly on a large database here of a molecularly annotated group of patients um, of all stages. And they did find that this came up so that there were multiple, multiple classifier tumors and they needed to find ways to reconcile this. Fortunately for us, for this paper, that um, did not come up. So all these patients um, somehow by luck of the draw were very clean as, as far as how they fell into um, each molecular subgroup. I did compare it to our overall database here, um, which was kind of developed and worked on at the same time. So all of these patients, fortunately for us, were very clean. None of them um, were confusing as to which group they fell into. But this is just an important point to, to think about. Um, even though we have these four quote-unquote clean groups, um, there is probably more work to be done, and there's going to be some tumors that don't fit neatly or cleanly into a specific category. Yeah, definitely. So we look forward to some of that work as well. Uh, now, Jenny, um, the next question is from Sarita Kumari. She's from India. Um, and she, she asked, based on this study in stage one, grade three, endometrial car cancers, do you believe there's any use of knowing the molecular status other than P53 mutations as all others uh, seem to have similar progression-free survival? You know, I do. I I think that there's compelling reasons to continue with additional molecular testing. Um, so the first one that always comes to mind is mismatch repair testing. Uh, so if you have a mismatch repair deficient tumor, that's a, that's a red flag to us as clinicians to offer genetic counseling, genetic testing to assess for Lynch syndrome and also cascade testing of family members. So there is a ton of uh, benefit to the simple act of testing a tumor at that stage. And P53, we know has an emerging relevance, uh, particularly if you can do immunostochemistry. Um, of course, mutation testing would be great, but not everybody has access or, or funds to do things like that. Um, so I would say those two for sure. And then I would, I would just plug and say that copy number low tumors or the no specific molecular profile tumors they are like the wastebasket of the TCGA subgroups. You know, it's like, if you look at every algorithm, it is whole E, MSI, copy number high. Okay, default, they all go to copy number low or NSMP. 
And there are some really compelling papers, maybe in the last two or three years that we can say that there's like good actors and bad actors in the copy number low group. And we don't have enough information. We have the beta catenin question, the one Q deletion question. We have some tumor biology that I just don't think we have clear understandings of. So I do think that until we feel like we're getting almost redundant data back, nothing new, nothing interesting, um, there's a lot to be gained from continuing this effort. Excellent. And um, this next question is from Harris uh, Theophanakis from uh, Greece. Um, and he asks, since patients with stage 1B grade 3 endometrial cancer will most uh, receive adjuvant chemotherapy, uh, do you think uh, that our attention should focus on stage 1A patients? That's a good, that's a fair question. I, you know, when you look at our study, most patients who had 1B grade 3 disease received chemotherapy but most is not all. So it is not practice at this point where everybody is getting chemotherapy. We discuss it um, pretty uniformly in this subset of patients, but you know, the randomized trials that are looking at incorporating chemotherapy in what we'd say high-risk patients don't have a large proportion of patients who are looking at this population, the 1B grade threes. So it's hard for any of us to declare that we know the right post-operative treatment strategy. We have you know, migrated towards treatment escalation where you're seeing a lot more chemotherapy in this subset of patients, but we've migrated there, I think, because we know that these patients are at risk for local and distant metastatic disease. And we're trying to use the treatments available in our toolbox to best serve these patients. But I do think we are often over-treating some of these patients. We, we don't necessarily know how to identify those, but as we escalate in our treatment, I think it's important to remember that perhaps we also need to be studying, is there clinical benefit um, to escalating that treatment? So that's just a point there. And then I think the, the main point of the question is, what about 1A grade three? And you know, we have some, some studies that have been published that show P53 altered early stage endometrial cancer. They're bad actors no matter what. So perhaps this is true in the 1A grade three. And this is a group where we maybe would de-escalate on systemic therapies, and it could be an interesting population to study as well. We just didn't focus on it in this study. Yeah, so much more to learn. Um, mm -hmm. Jenny, um, this next question comes from Alexander Shushkevich, who's our fellow in Ukraine. And um, he asked, Portek 1 and GOG-99 showed poor accuracy to predict recurrence and nodal metastases. However, molecular analysis of tumors uh, costs a lot. And even in middle and high income countries, many cannot afford it on a routine practice as you have it at, at Memorial Sloan Kettering. So based on your knowledge, do you, do you have any suggestions on how those countries uh, can combine all these metrics to find a better way to predict recurrence? Yeah, so this is the key question. Um, and it's gonna come up over and over again until we figure out a better way to integrate what are now, right now, not cost-effective strategies. Um, how to make technology like this more accessible, how to incorporate pathologic and molecular information. Um, I do think that in immunohistochemistry for mismatch repair and P53 captures a lot. Um, so if institutions are able to institute that alone, um, you do have, you've canvassed a good number of the endometrial cancers that 
perhaps you have clinically relevant or prognostically relevant information on. It's always a sticking point with poly because you can have P53 abnormal and mismatch repair deficient poly tumors. And although it's not, you know, if you just look at the studies, it's a smaller proportion. You certainly don't want to escalate treatment in someone who might actually be the best acting tumor. But we, until we have a low cost, quick turnaround poly assay, which I do believe is coming soon, but until we have that, it's, it's problematic. But that would be my perfect world scenario. Um, so we do have that here. We have a, you know, covered by insurance, FDA approved assay. We combine that with immunohistochemistry and how fortunate are we, but what about everyone else? And, you know, the truth is it's not just um, developing nations or under-resourced um, countries here in the United States, not all institutions really have access to all of this kind of ready to go for every endometrial cancer patient testing. Mm -hmm. um, we also have those added layers of, do you have private or government insurance? Um, you know, do you have next generation sequencing available in your institution? What kind of IHC testing are you allowed to do? Some countries you're literally not allowed because your government limits some of the things that you do um, because you have government run health healthcare. So at this point, I do think it's safe to say mismatch repair testing is absolutely important. P53 is emerging in its importance and we need to push more as we are getting more clinically relevant information to make all of this cheaper, faster, and readily accessible to other places. Yeah. But, you know, I guess to kind of go back to the, the kernel of the question, it's an integration. It is not replacement. Not at this point. I don't think we have any compelling information to say we should just be molecular, you know, molecularly annotating tumors and then do away with all the good information that we're getting from the PATH report. Yeah, and, and I think you, you've uh, you've uh, uh, targeted that, and, and I think re somewhat related to to the next question that is uh, is also from Gabriela Schiavardi to to you, asking um, you know do you believe it is still helpful, fair to stratify endometrial cancers without using molecular classifications? In other words, should should we pursue this further and be more mandatory, if you will? Yeah. So. I guess the word myopic comes to mind. Like, I don't want to become so myopic, right? Where we just are so excited. We have this new data. It seems really exciting. But if you grasp too tightly, you are missing all of the really rich context around what we already know and what really benefits our patients. So I think that this study and the message of this paper is that we are not here to replace what we have already done with molecular profiling. We are getting really good information from you know, past studies, we have these wonderful risk classification systems that are taking stuff that are like low hanging fruit from the PATH report. How old is this patient? What does their uterine risk factor look like? SLN with ultra staging has also given us additional surgical precision to really properly stage patients and find out what their true risk of recurrence is. So I really think the key is that we integrate all of that information and as we get more information around the relevance of P53, the relevance of mismatch repair, POL-E, that we use that to aid our patients clinically and prognostically. And so, you know, I think at least short term, we're probably going to be integrating all of this together. There are some people, thought leaders in our space who would argue over time, they may replace our molecular information could potentially replace our clinical and pathologic information. 
but I, I really don't think that's where we're at at all. And I would, I would discourage people from going in that direction. I think we're going to miss some really valuable opportunities to treat our patients if we did. Very well. So I'll switch over to Bill now. And, uh, you know, Jenny mentioned age as a factor. And this question comes from our managing fellow, Arthur Sue. Um, and Bill, he, he asked, age was an important risk factor in, in Portec and GOG-99. Now that we're in the molecular era, does age uh, still really play that importance of a role? Yes, it does. And I think, you know, this is a great point to highlight. And I can kind of piggyback off of what Dr. Mueller just went through. Age is still important. Um, a lot of the factors that were used for Portec one and GOG99 are still important. Uh, so I think rather than molecular classification replacing, as Dr. Miller uh, said, we need to find a way to integrate this. Um, I don't know why the tumor biology is worse at older ages, but we did even see in our paper um, that the copy number high patients, for instance, had an increased uh, median age compared or a higher median age compared to the other groups. So the tumors in our older patients still seem to be behaving worse, even when we're using molecular classification. So I think integration is key. Fantastic. And um, another question from Arthur. He, uh, he points out that MLH1 hypermethylation has been shown to be a poor prognostic subgroup in the mismatch repair deficient, um, with some suggestion that it is as worse as P53. Was hypermethylation of MLH1 checked in your study? So we did not include that in this paper. Um, I may need to reach out to Arthur because I think this was a, a very thoughtful question. Um, I did look back uh, briefly because um, uh, I heard this question ahead of time uh, from Arthur. And I did see that of our 20 MSI patients, 17 of them, um, or 20 MSI patients who had a loss of MLH1 and PMS2, 17 of those 20 were noted to have MLH1 hypermethylation present. And of the remaining patients, it was actually not known at the time of the study. Um, they did not undergo MLH1 hypermethylation at that point. So of all the ones who were tested, they actually were positive for MLH1 hypermethylation. And we do have some data that, that shows or tells us that MLH1 endometrial cancers with promoter hypermethylation can behave differently, can look differently than just somatic or germline DMMR endometrial cancer. We didn't look at this specifically in our study, um, but I think it would be interesting to investigate that further. Great. So I would tell Arthur that uh, I think I heard an indirect invitation to become a research fellow at Memorial Sloan Kettering. So <laughs> I take a from Taipei to, uh, to New York City. Uh, I love it. So <laughs> Way to go, Arthur. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so we, we just have a few more questions because I, obviously I want to be respectful of your time. And, and Bill, uh, this question is from Tatiana Palacios in Colombia. Um, she asked, could you share with us how you treat these four different molecular subtypes uh, of stage one, grade three at Memorial Sloan Kettering? Absolutely. And we touched on this kind of throughout, so I think I could be brief, but it is important. Um, so at this point, at least here at Sloan Kettering, we have not broadly changed our practice patterns based off of molecular subtyping for endometrial cancer. We still are using shared decision-making with patients, consensus discussions across our disease management teams, but we have started to incorporate P53 status, which is a surrogate for copy number high, into our discussions to escalate treatment with our patients. So it's kind of yes and no. 
We have not completely adopted this to drive our treatment strategies. We are using some of the information that we have, particularly P53 status, but we're really still relying on the known uterine risk factors, um, such as deep myometrial invasion, the presence of LVSI. Um, once we see more high quality data that integrates molecular um, subtyping, shows clinical benefit with the use of molecular subtyping, I think we can make more sweeping practice changes. Um, I think that's a little bit more of a hope right now, and I hope we move in that direction. But essentially right now, P53 status can kind of push us um, in our treatment decisions with the patient, but we still rely on the uterine factors. Excellent. So uh, as a last question to our podcast, I directed to uh, Jenny, um, the future, how do you foresee this information becoming practice changing intervention, say in the next five years, how, how are we going to be using this five years from now? Yeah, I mean, I think there's almost no magic here. It's we have to build on work like this study and continue to um, use what we have and put it out there to show is there benefit or not clinically to escalating treatment in patients who have, you know, bad tumor biology based on molecular information. So our data suggests that the P53 altered 1B grade 3s are bad actors and may benefit from systemic chemotherapy and that treatment escalation is reasonable. But that's just one study. And it, as we mentioned before, it's retrospective. We didn't actually set out to study a true unique difference across all 1B grade 3s, whether they were P53 altered or not. And I think as a clinician, that's what I would look for in a study to practice change for me is, okay, well, all things being equal, did we see differences or was this treatment even effective in this group? We know that they're bad actors, but like, was this treatment even the right treatment for them? So, you know, not to rain on that parade, this is a great and exciting area of research. We're really excited to be a part of it, but, you know, I think we need to grow our literature as we integrate molecular information um, around, alongside those clinical and pathologic risk factors that we know um, are truly, you know, valid things that we would escalate treatment around to say who stands to benefit from treatment escalation. So I would also just say, these studies are so wonderful because we can use them. There are observations that inform clinical trial design. So prospective study is one of the best ways to help change practice. Um, so I would just say, no one institution, we have a large cohort here, but no one institution is going to be able to answer questions in these smaller subgroups of endometrial cancer. So it is going to take collaborative, cooperative, prospective research studies. It could be investigator initiated. It does not have to necessarily be at the you know, national cooperative level, but there's plenty of investigator initiated studies where we can do things like this. And you know, for a 1B grade three, I'd want to know, okay, let's treat them all the same and then stratify by their molecular subtype and then measure outcomes long-term and say, well, who's benefiting? You know, is it really the P53 abnormal or is it all the 1B grade threes? So those are my thoughts on that. I think if we had 10 or 20 other people on this Zoom call, <laughs> everyone would add something a little richer and more interesting into a conversation like this. But um, certainly it will be the subject of debate and conversation for the next few years. Well, thank you so, so much, Jenny Mueller, Bill Zamorelli from Memorial Sloan Kettering. Jenny, as always, you do a fantastic job. Bill, you also did a fantastic job on this podcast. We definitely love to have you back. 
Uh, thank you both for accepting the invitation to participate in the podcast. Uh, congratulations to, to you both and the entire team of co-authors on, on this uh, manuscript. Um, really, it's been a, a great learning opportunity uh, for me and for, for our listeners as well. So thank you very, very much. Thanks, Pedro. Thank you so much for having us.